is taking on this new project or is dating this person or is moving to this new house or is buying this new car or is gaining this new knowledge going to make me happy? That's how most people sort of approach or think about um, new possibilities. Is it going to make me happy versus is it going to be a relevant or useful outlet for the happiness that I have? In other words, I've accumulated so much happiness inside. Now I'm looking for outlets for the happiness. That's so awesome. I, I want to get into the relationship because I have happiness to share, not to get happy. I want to take on this project because I have creativity and happiness to share, not to get happy. I want to move into this particular house because I want to use it as a way to bring people together because I want to share happiness, not to get happy. So I it's love a that. different way of approaching life that is that is happening from the inside out as opposed to hoping that happiness comes from the outside in. Hello and welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Hello. Hello. Oh, that, that was nice and mild and meek. Hello and welcome to Happy Pair. Sarah. <laughs> no. Hello and welcome to Happy Pair Podcast. We are honored to have your ears, your heart, your soul and your attention. Okay, I'm going to do one of those kind of fun ones. The Happy Pair Podcast is about inspiring to live a happier, healthier. No, sorry. Stephen doesn't like that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, we're delighted to have you. We really are. Thanks for tuning in. Thank Great. you. What are we going to chat about, Sarah? I don't know. It's a lovely day today. Oh, it was beautiful. I just did, I just did yoga in the grass there. So it's, it's March. It's been like a month of manky weather. And I took off my shoes and socks very tentatively because the grass was wet. And I thought I was only going to do a minute yoga, maybe two minutes. And I ended up doing 20 minutes and I feel great. That's think, lovely. You went for a walk. sunshine is just so good for the soul. And I, I like, part of me feels like a little starved. And you just kind of get us like, <gasps> I think we could be plants. I think yeah. we could be plants. Yeah, yeah. I really think we are. I want to ask you a question because um, you guys love the mindfulness space and you are friends with so many mindful people. But me and Sean, you're just mindless. Well, I was actually thinking, like, you guys are like super competitive. And oh, no. And uh, with each other, at least, and amongst everyone else. But um, yeah. Is there space if you work in the mind, like if you're a mindfulness guru of sorts? Yeah. Can you be competitive as well? Definitely. Yeah. I think like my limited interpretation is I think like we're humans, like there's no perfection. And I think, you know, it's a spectrum on the journey to enlightenment and uh, enlightenment. So now you you just sprinkle the word there. Now, what the heck does that mean? Where you become nothing but light. Yeah, but well, what you about the whole lighter and more less heavy and less burdened human being? But it oh, still doesn't one. matter that we have the, you know, we're subjected to the kind of frivolities of human life, such as com- competition. It's great fun. I think I think where competition becomes the challenge is when we're attached to the outcome. If we're competition for the fun of the competition and we don't feel like I have to win, oh my god, I lost, oh my god, then we're attached to the What outcome. about with work? With work, absolutely the same. I think Yeah, and then I also think the more evolved, like I guess ha- like and I guess this is the we live in capitalism and we're kind of baked into this cultural ideas of capitalism and the you know, survival of the fittest, and that's the current paradigm. But I do think the greater of evolution, like I know myself, I'd like to be evolved where I'm much more process orientated rather than result orientated because our society is so focused on the end result that I think very much many of us are missing it in the day to day, the process. So I think in myself, I'm really trying to just focus more on the process and less on the result because I think that's where the daily wins are. 
Stephen, Stephen just raised behind his hand, me. Does not happen. Because competition, Stephen wants to say something better than Dave. No, I don't. No, I don't. I swear. <laughs> I'm better than you, I'm Steve. not like that at all. Uh, no, but I was just going to say, even with the happy pair, the times when we've been least attached to the outcome, like absolutely caught in it, giving it our absolute heart, soul, and everything. But at the same time, if it all goes to pot and there's just me and Dave left, actually, we'll find something else to play. You know the way? And I think the more we're in that place, the more. We tend to, the magic tends to show, but the more we're caught up, it has to go this way, it has to go this way. That's often when, you know, thing, it, it's not as easy. And I guess what I'm I think life tests you so much. So if you, if you found, say, two twins of similar demographic to you, making similar food, having Called a similar David podcast. David Stephen <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> Would there not be an element of, we we're better yeah. than you guys, chumps. Let's do some press-ups. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go for a run. Yeah. Um... Absolutely, but maybe, think, uh, but then also I think maybe it's as we've got older. Maybe it's because we've got less testosterone because we're forty-two now. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Testosterone, what? yeah, whatever that word is. You're better than me, Steve. You know bigger words than me. Um, but I think I think ultimately, like it really is about that having more acceptance within ourselves, and maybe it is with less testosterone. Maybe we are becoming more kinder, compassionate human beings as we get old. Maybe not. I don't know. But I certainly do think that it's more about. Um, Less about the competition and more about like, you know, all those cliches that you hear, like, you know, stop comparing yourself to the people that's only with yourself. Yeah. Like the more that we can honestly become gentler and kinder with ourselves and be less competitive with other people, I think the more we're going to find greater kindness and joy in our daily and lives. And I agree with you. And you sound great saying all these things, but from the but you're full of crap. Pers- <laughs> from the human perspective that Stephen touched on briefly, when was the last time you found yourself in a kind of I'm being competitive? Not against each other. Even earlier, we did Ireland's fittest family. Oh, that was great fun. Or, or then even yesterday, we did a whole lot of 5K, one kilometer runs. It was Harold. So Sarah's partner, Harold. Handsome Harold. Handsome Harold. It was <laughs> Stephen and me and Mark Davies. And there was a four of us. And Harold had the incredible genius of idea. Let's do five one kilometers at like 80 or 90% or of our three and a half minutes. Yeah, in like I, four and a half, half minutes or something. And it was like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's like burst our lungs for like one kilometer five times. Sounds class. And, and we how all decided long, to how, do it. How, how quick did you do it? Just for it was around three and a half minutes. We were we were probably a little slower because we were slightly under the no, Olympic you level. You were This is the competitive. I did it with Harold, and we were sub four, and you guys were above. No, 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 three and a half. Oh, look, there's the full competitiveness. Anyway, Sarah's better than us, just for the record, and I totally agree with that. But there was such joy. At least I found joy in the sense of you know, pushing your potential and collectively finding more in yourself than you would on your own. On my own, I wouldn't have pushed myself to the same degree, but collectively, we were encouraged and dragged each other further. Well, now, I would beg to differ because on the last one, there was no begging and encouraging everyone <laughs> else. There was only Stephen Flynn whoring off ahead of everyone going, oh, I've got a bigger dick than you, lads. <laughs> that was the only thing that I remember. I don't remember you going, great job, lads. Come on, come on. You like so, For the record, I won, is what he's saying. <laughs> and he feels bitter. <laughs> Perfect. Maybe. Well, anyway. I anyway. know that was that perfect <laughs> intro for our, our podcast on mindfulness know, <laughs> and meditation. We are all... flawed, insecure humans. <laughs> yeah, that talk about mindfulness. Battling around anyway. in the gravel of life. Uh, anyway, today's podcast is with the wonderful Light Watkins. He is a world-renowned author, meditation teacher, and just all-round we, we, we met him about five years ago at an event in 
Tucson, Tucson, Arizona. Arizona. We got to go to Tucson, Arizona. It was amazing. And we got to meet loads of cool people. And Light was one of them. And I remember going, Light, your name's Light. How cool. But anyway, it was an incredible conversation. We discussed many topics such as faith, inspiration, finding purpose and meaning and the importance of mindfulness. Because for many people, the idea of meditation is like, I don't want to meditate. How do you do? But he talks about Meditation for people who hate meditation. So really cool, dude. Really Very practical. practical, full of lovely little stories. There's some really good nuggets in here. I really enjoyed this. So yeah, buckle up. Hope you have fun. And uh, and just and, oh, before we start, we'd love you to tell me about a project that we are super inspired about. Yeah, we really are. We've got our Good Health Revolution. It's a course. It's starting on April the 11th. And it's all about, okay, so all health starts in the gut. It genuinely does. And likewise, all disease starts in the gut. And the gut is like, it's like the human center of biology. Also known as your second. Brain. Also known as Jack and Brain. Anyway, we've got a four-week course starting. It's called The Good Health Revolution. It's with gastroenterologist Dr. Alan Desmond, Rosie Martin, dietitian, and myself and Stephen. And it's got a mindfulness. And as society, we need a good health revolution. A good health revolution. It's got mindfulness okay. in it too. Simone Venner. She yes. does yes. all. Yeah. But it's really cool. There's uh, Hopefully, we're going to get a thousand people to do it all starting together from April the 11th. It's four weeks. It's on all about mobile application. On a new mobile application. Well said, Stephen. I hope it's going to work perfect then. Yeah, for uh, but yeah, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, so please do check it out. We really want to get as many people. We want to start a good health revolution. I mean it. Without further ado, we give you the wonderful Light Watkins. So, like, obviously, you're up against the up against the edge of a deadline, and you're kind of, you know, you're away. You, you said you've got more to do or whatever. And I like there's yeah. a, a question which just came to my mind there, which was about like, where do you find the difference between trusting in life and like having faith that it's all going to work out, and you know rainbows will show up and a unicorn's going to come in and help you write the book <laughs> divine time or versus kind of grabbing life by the horns and going okay it's showtime like i'm just gonna have to grit this out and get into that ring and start swinging that's a good question so the way i kind of think about that is is i my job is to do the best i can given um my priorities right so my number one priority mental health, spiritual health, physical health. So I definitely make time for all of that every day. And, and then, you know, we, we all have built-in time wasters. Like I'm definitely spending more time on social media than I probably should. And I spend more time on the internet than I probably should. And I could easily justify it by saying, oh, well, I get ideas that I write about this and that, but, you know, at the end of the day, if I'm being honest with myself, I know that I could be devote, devoting more time to the things that, um, that are also considered very important projects, like such as the writing. So it's just that it's just, it's just really a matter for me of being honest with myself and constantly having to, um, have that conversation so that I can continue to show up in the way that I want to show up because, after the fact, right, especially when it comes to a book that's going to be out there forever, you you feel much better knowing that you invested that extra time. You went you went above and beyond um, once the book comes out versus feeling like you didn't do the best job that you could have done. And I've had I've had experiences where I knew I didn't do as as good as I want it to do. And, and so I don't like living with that level of regret. So I'm willing to, to do whatever's necessary in order to, to not 
not have that regret and to have the opposite feeling, which is, Hey, I did my best. And this is awesome. And so anything that happens after that is just, you know, it is what it is. And can I, can I riff off that? I was just going to say, can I, do you mind if I, I, I want to just add one thing before you go, but think okay. we're excited. Uh, but often when you do go through that process, there's a point at which you have to go, I've done the best with the limited time that I have and the resources that I have. Because there's always this human need for greed and desire to do better and the ego wanting to show its full plumage and its full beauty and magnitude of its brilliance. And you kind of, I think part of it almost is when you reach that point, it's just, I've done my bit. I'm going to leave it out to the world. And that's that. And that's a lovely feeling. And, and I was going yeah. to say, I, I, can, I, can I just riff off this and then, sorry, I was just going to say that um, sometimes it's finding the right balance. And I don't know what you think about this is that like sometimes like when you have that mindset, it's I've got to do my best and you grit your teeth and you're like, I've just got to do my best. I've just got to sit here and flog myself until <laughs> this book gets done and I've written 70,000 words or whatever it is. And, and I wonder like that balance between that perspective and then also the lightness that kind of goes, okay, well, I'm going to go out for a run. I'm going to get myself in a really good state of mind and I'm going to spend two hours and really go hard on it. Is that like, do you find there's a balance between those two processes within the creativity or do you, do you stem more towards the, the latter or the former? hundred percent, man. It's the, it's the, it's that axiom above. If you only have 15 minutes to cut down a tree, you know, you want to spend the first 10 minutes sharpening the axe, right? So definitely I have aspects of that in my process where I always make time for a meditation. I try to prioritize sleep because I know that I'm much more effective as a communicator when I'm taking care of myself. And so when I say doing my best, I'm including all of that in the equation, not just the writing itself. Like if you're only depending on the writing itself, it's going to be very challenging. But if you're, if you're eating well, if you're going you know, walking, moving your body, um, meditating and doing all the things, being grateful, then I find for me that it makes the writing flow a lot more. And also I've been writing, I write every day for a couple of hours. You know, I send out this daily dose of inspiration email to my subscribers every morning. I've been doing that since uh, 2016 at this point. So I've done this thousands and thousands of times and the, the reason why I started doing that was because I wanted to practice writing. I wanted to practice storytelling. I wanted to practice self-editing. I wanted to practice being in that flow state. And, um, and so it's, a, it's that whole idea of, you know, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. <laughs> so when I sit down to write my book, you know, it's just, it's an extension of what I've already been doing for years and years and years. And it doesn't feel like this, this monumental thing. And I think deadlines are good, you know, because if I didn't have a deadline and I've, we've all had that experience, you don't have a deadline, you just kind of drag it out and come up with better excuses. And, but having that deadline is good. And, and the pressure is good because it makes you have to prioritize things properly. And uh, my teacher, my meditation teacher's teacher used to say this thing about, you know, our, mo our greatest asset. A lot of people would say your greatest asset is time but here's the thing you can have all the time in the world but if you don't know how to prioritize then you can end up wasting all that time and so my teacher's teacher would say your greatest asset is your ability to discriminate or to discern or to prioritize and to know at any moment what the most important thing is what the second most important thing is like that down the line 
And when you are on a deadline, the most important thing may not be working on the project. It may be resting. It may be going and sitting and closing your eyes for 10 or 15 minutes and just tuning in. It may be uh, making sure you're eating something that is nourishing you so that you can then um, use all of that to get into that flow state, which is what we all ultimately want. That's, yeah. that's a great expression. If you don't need to, you know, if you're always ready, you don't need to get ready. I've never heard that. Uh, that's that, that point of flow state, I think, is something that we all desire. And my limited understanding of it is to be more listening to our gut and almost in our childlike enthusiasm and curiosity for life, as opposed to our logical, rational fear kind of assessment of life type paradigm of the world. Um, I wonder if you could talk about flow state, because it's something that it's a word that's often thrown around in tech industries and often people don't necessarily understand it. And maybe I'm understanding it incorrectly. The way I, I think about flow state is having invested enough time, energy, effort, understanding into something to the point where you don't have to think about it. It's not something you have to think about while you're doing it. In, instead, you're in the process of it, right? Because when you haven't invested the time and energy and effort, then it's like you guys, you know, with your handstands, like you don't have to think about how to do a handstand. You can just pop up in a handstand, right? And you may be thinking about something completely unrelated. Whereas someone who's never, who hasn't put the kind of time and energy into training yourself to be able to do that, all they're thinking about is don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, you know? And, and because they're thinking about don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, guess what happens? They fall. <laughs> and it's not that they're doing it wrong. It's just that that's where you start, right? You start there and then you, you, you keep diligently working and training and practicing and, and ultimately getting into the process of it. And once you get into the process of it, you're no longer worried about falling because you've already fallen so many times, you know how to fall. And it's this weird thing that happens is once you know how to fall, you don't fall as much because then you're, your, your attention goes elsewhere to the more nuanced, subtle aspects of that practice. And that can apply to anything. It can apply to comedy, can apply to giving keynotes, can apply to raising kids. You know, a new mother is not going to be able to be as efficient as someone who's already had two or three kids. And they already know how to multitask and do all the things. And so when the, uh, when the newest baby is starting to cry, they're not going to freak out like the new mother with their first child freaking out, overreacting, you know, making the situation worse, but that's where it starts. So, um, so I just, when I'm doing something new, like I'm learning Spanish right now, cause I'm in Mexico and it's hard, man. It's hard because it, it uses a different part of my brain. Um, but I understand this is the process. I'm going to sound stupid. I'm going to be clumsy. I'm going to sound like Tarzan in the, in the early days, but then at some point it's going to click I'm not going to be thinking about masculine, feminine, which word comes before the other word. You know, it's just all going to start to get into that flow state. And I'm just going to start speaking while thinking about something completely unrelated. And, 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 but I have to put in the reps to get to that point. So flow state is earned. It's not something that you can intellectualize. You have to, you have to act, you have to execute, you have to, you have to almost start off outcome oriented in order to get to that point of being process oriented. Yeah. And I think that 
that's something which I'm so curious about at the moment because we live in such a culture nowadays which is so results orientated. It's so mm-hmm. external and so focused on the end. Like, I want to have loads of money. I want to have a big car. I want to own a house. I want a lovely partner. Whatever these kind of external kind of goals might be. And I often kind of like... I often think quite a bit of that is at the expense of the process. And ultimately, like with meditation and mindfulness, it comes back to process. It comes back to, you know, letting go of the end result and being focused on the daily little actions or each moment, the breaths in each moment. And I wonder, could you talk about the balance between this and how meditation and mindfulness kind of manages that and process is probably the word here between results and process or journey and destiny. Journey journey and destination. Yeah, same words there. What's beautiful about that is when those two merge, the um, journey and the destination, you know, that's how they, they say that the, the, the real destination is the journey. The journey is the destination. The process is the destination. But again, when we start off and we're not as, as uh, spiritually mature as we will be at one point in our life, um, especially if we're dedicating some time every day to cultivating that spiritual maturity, um, we may start off being more outcome oriented in our approach to life and thinking about where this is leading and what's going to happen at the end point. And the, and the reason we do that is because we think that happiness is going to come on the yonder side of the achievement. And so once you have enough experiences where you achieve pretty remarkable things and you realize it's not making me any happier there's a temporary wave of joy that comes from knowing that i did something that was hard right but then once that dissipates i'm back into my sort of baseline level of happiness and i'm not really any more happy than i was before and so we'd have to run the experiment again okay well maybe the next achievement and then maybe the next achievement and then eventually we get to the point where we realize that the achievement is not where where it is and that's where they have that sort of midlife crisis you know where you 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 arrive in in your 40s or or, or older and you, you realize that i've achieved all the things and i still don't feel what i thought i was supposed to feel inside and so where meditation and mindfulness the reason why we're still talking about them thousands and thousands and thousands of years after they were first on the scene um is because it's one of the one of the only things that gets us to that happiness that we all ultimately want to have, which evidently is found inside. And the only way to access it, you can't pay somebody to give it to you. You can't have surgery to access it. You have to literally sit down and just do the opposite of what we normally are doing, which is, which is being active. And we have to just get into a least excited state of awareness. And the beautiful thing about that is that once we tap into that least excited state of awareness, we are able to feel that sense of contentedness and feel that sense of, of, of um, fulfillment. But, but it doesn't last for very long. It may only be there for a split second, the first few times. And the rest of the time, we're just monkey mind and sitting there thinking about all the things we have to do. And so the more we keep investing in that space, dropping into that state of of being as opposed to doing, the more we tap into that. And then eventually, we can actually export it from the 
eyes closed state into the eyes open state into activity. And that's where we'll start to find that we become more process oriented, just inherently as opposed to outcome oriented. So the, the, one of the points that I make in my meditation workshops um, that I've been doing for over 15 years now is that being able to access that state of awareness in the meditation is really a beginner's experience. It's nothing to write home about. <laughs> the master experience is can you take that state that you have with your eyes closed and your least excited state of awareness, can you take that into activity? Can you have that with your eyes open? And the only way to do that is the same way, you know, you guys can do your handstands. The only way somebody can, can do pull-ups, you have to train yourself. You have to put the time and you have to invest the energy into cultivating it. And then, but the great thing about it is that once you cultivate it, it doesn't go anywhere. It's with you all the time. So it's like a, it's like a, a compounding asset that's just getting stronger and uh, more and more prevalent in your life. And, and it reinforces all of the reasons why you should continue investing the time and space and energy into cultivating it because it, it changes your perceptual acuity and it makes you just grateful for no reason. It makes you happy for no reason. And then the questions start to change away from is, is taking on this new project going to make me happier too? Is this new project going to be a relevant outlet for the happiness that I have inside? So two completely different ways of looking at it. Right. Will you say that again? One, that's a beautiful. That's a beautiful perspective. Is taking on this new project, or is dating this person, or is moving to this new house, or is buying this new car, or is gaining this new knowledge going to make me happy? That's how most people sort of approach or think about um, new possibilities. Is it going to make me happy? Versus, is it going to be a relevant or useful outlet for the happiness that I have? In other words. I've accumulated so much happiness inside. Now I'm looking for outlets for the happiness. That's and so awesome. I, I want to get into the relationship because I have happiness to share, not to get happy. I want to take on this project because I have creativity and happiness to share, not to get happy. I want to move into this particular house because I want to use it as a way to bring people together because I want to share happiness, not to get happy. So I it's love a that. different way of approaching life that is that is happening from the inside out, as opposed to hoping that happiness comes from the outside in. Yeah, totally. Even I, I, I just remember one story when I was meditating loads and kind of deep in it and really kind of getting into that state where it was nearly, there was nearly as much joy or more joy in the med meditating and, and rather than being in the day-to-day -day life. And I remember it, it, it was almost like carrying a friend with me everywhere. You know, whenever there was, you were waiting mm -hmm. anywhere, it was like, oh, I'll just say hello to my little friend there. And you tune into your body, you tune into your <laughs> sensation. And it was this beautiful, kind of, it was, it was quite the antithesis of loneliness. It was when you were on your own, you felt really full. And it was this kind of beautiful, mm. but anyway, I went off on the side there. Um, totally agree. I think everything you said there was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I wonder, could we, can I? Go yeah, on? yeah, go for it. Faith. Okay. Nowadays in modern society, faith with the demise of religion in, in lots of aspects of Western civilization, faith is something that kind of 
has been put into the background at the expense of materialism and having possessions and having achievements. But there's this underlying faith or trust in something bigger, this just trust in the divine or in the process or trust that things are going to be okay. It's often missing. And as a result, fear tends to pervade. I wonder if we could talk about faith, because I think this is something that is often not discussed, is not celebrated, is not really given the perspective that I think the the benefits and they're almost at um, odds to one another fear versus faith and security like yes. because fear and security i think are on one end of the spectrum and faith is on the other end because yeah, faith, faith has is an inherent trust intertwined in intertwined with abundance almost so i had an experience once when i was a kid when i was a teenager i should say i went i grew up in a, in alabama which is in the southern part of the united states there wasn't a lot of water around and no big bodies of water, just swimming pools and stuff like that. So I wasn't a very good swimmer. I wasn't a swimmer at all. In fact, I could, I could tread water a little bit, but I could not swim. And so the first time I saw the ocean, I was about 14 or so years old. And, uh, and I was with a friend of mine and we decided to wade out into the water and I'm six foot something tall. So I, I can go pretty far without my feet leaving the floor of the ocean. And then we got to a point where um, my feet were no longer touching the bottom of the ocean. And then I started to sort of panic inside. But again, I'm, I'm a teenager. And so my friend is with me and I didn't want to show fear. And then he yells, <clears throat> he yells, I think there's a shark. And he starts swimming back to the, to the shore. And I... I grew up in the seventies, man. So I watched Jaws one too many times. And all I could think about was this, this massive <laughs> shark coming <laughs> towards me. And the, yeah, exactly. The piano music. So I'm like swimming. I'm, I'm trying to impersonate a swimmer because I don't know how to swim. I'm just moving <laughs> my arms and legs, but I'm not going anywhere. In fact, I'm going further and further out into the ocean and I'm, I'm literally exhausting myself. And and I'm just, I'm completely consumed with fear. And, and then I just felt like, okay, this is it. This is how it's going to end. I'm going to get attacked by a shark. It's awful. And then something kind of pierced through my fear and said to me, start swimming to the side. And I heard it so clearly. And I was so exhausted from not being able to move that I just started swimming to the side. And then slowly but surely i got closer and closer to the shoreline there was never any shark and eventually i came out of the water and i sat down next to my friend i didn't say anything about it but that moment always stayed with me because i'd never heard a voice so clearly tell me to do something and it worked out my benefit and later on again i was this is in the this is in the 80s so there were no there's no internet i couldn't go and cross reference anything uh, we had encyclopedias back then. So I went to the encyclopedia and I looked it up and I found out that I was actually caught in a riptide. And the thing that you do when you're caught in a riptide is you swim to the side. That's how you, that's how you escape a riptide. And so I always suspected that that voice was some sort of inner guidance and I benefited from that same type of voice a few other times in my life in some pretty um, remarkable ways 
And will, will you will you I tell us will you tell the story of uh, when you were going to Paris? I think that is the most. Yeah, that is just yeah. such a good story. Like it's such a good story. Yeah, no, that's a great story. I, I'm gonna I'll t- tell that in one second. I just want to wrap yeah, up yeah. this point. Um, I think one of the reasons why we struggle with faith is because we sort of feel disconnected from that inner guidance or we only hear it when we're in emergency situations. And so it, 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 it's, uh, it's in an emergency situation, if we're, if we're too inundated with fear, then, then it, may, it may not make a whole lot of sense to do something that doesn't, doesn't seem very logical to the mind, like swimming to the side. I wanted to swim towards the shoreline. I didn't want to swim to, towards the side, but I decided to trust it and have faith in it regardless. And so again, mindfulness, meditation practices like that, one of the things that they're doing is they're connecting us to our inner guidance, because the reality is that this thing that we are wanting to have faith in is a part of us. And for all we know, that could be our future self who already knows how riptides work, (laughs) kind of telling us, you know, tapping back into our younger self and telling us, hey, this is what you do to escape this situation. Or if you're experiencing a heartbreak and you're 19 and you hear this internal guidance saying, hey, it's not a big deal, you know, life's going to go on. That could be your 30-year-old self or your 50-year-old self or your 80-year-old self. We don't know. Nobody knows for, for, for a fact. But that's, that's the way I like to think about inner guidance these days because it just makes it a little bit more intimate and a little bit more um, uh, personal as opposed to thinking about some you know white man with a beard in the sky spurring <laughs> into our consciousness to do this or do that and you know maybe it works out maybe it doesn't work out um, the Paris story so that was something that I experienced much later probably actually not much probably like six years later after graduating college I was working in advertising um, in Chicago and it was it was it was by all stretches, it was it was a dream job. It was the thing that I went to college for. I majored in advertising. Um, I got selected to work in the creative department of this boutique advertising agency. We had lots of freedom and and um, resources. And you know, it wasn't like one of those clock in clock out jobs. I actually wanted to be there early. I wanted to stay late, but at the same time. I realized that it wasn't, it didn't fulfill me. It didn't have that, I didn't have that sense of fulfillment that I always suspected I would have. And I looked around the office at the other people who've been there the longest from the owner on down, creative directors and art directors. And, and everybody just kind of seemed like they were just going through the motions and, you know, living for the next pitch or the next uh, bonus or, you know, the 401k. And, and I thought to myself, okay, this is not, it's not bad. It's just, but it's not, it's, 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 I don't think it's a rare thing. It's always going to be here. And why don't I just explore other things? And then if I want to come back and work in this kind of industry, then I'll just do that at that time. So I, I resigned after three months, which was a leap of faith, you know? Um, And I didn't really know what I was going to do. But I had done a couple of amateur fashion shows in college. So I figured I'd go to, I'd start modeling. Now, what I didn't know at the time was 
you don't nominate yourself to model. People discover you, right? Someone comes <laughs> up to you in the mall and says, hey, do you have an agency? You should come and uh, I'll represent you. That's how it usually works. You don't just show up and go, hey, I'm ready to model. Who wants to represent me? <laughs> but I didn't know any better, right? I was naive and, and I think I needed some of that naivete to do what I did. But I decided I was going to go to Paris. I was going to go to Paris to be a model. And I had no money um, and I had no connections. I didn't speak the language. But that was the thought that had been so it was an implanted obvious in my <laughs> yeah, It was exactly. an obvious choice, yeah. <laughs> that was the thought. I didn't tell anybody that no one was expecting me and no one was calling for me. I, in fact, I lied to my, my mom and told her that um, I had some potential business arrangements in Paris. All <laughs> getting, you know, it was all sorted out because I didn't want her to worry. And I spent my last little money on a one-way flight to Paris. And I'd done a little bit of research. You know, I knew a couple of modeling agencies. And, um, and I got to Newark for the connecting flight. And that's when it got real uh, because the flight had, was all full of French natives. I didn't understand anything anyone was saying. And it was packed. And, um, and it was a night flight that was going to arrive the next morning and uh and so they came on the announcement and they said oh we have we have oversold the flight uh would anyone like to volunteer their seat no one moved and then they said okay well we have a voucher for i think it was 200 dollars, and still no one moved and then they came back and they said okay we have a voucher for i think it was like 800 dollars." so i jumped up and went over and and gave up my seat because I mean, what do I care? No one was expecting me anyway. So I got my $800 and right off the bat, I had enough money to come back if I needed to come back or go somewhere else if I wanted to go somewhere else. So I thought, okay, that's really cool. There was only one flight a day on that airline. So they put us up in a hotel. And then the next day we came back in the evening and it was oversold, full of French natives. And it was the same song, second verse. We, we need volunteers to give up their seat. Here's an $800 voucher. So I jumped up again, gave up my ticket again. And I was like, holy shit, I could do this for a living. Like I could just come <laughs> here and just make $800 a pop. This is awesome. <laughs> so now I had $1,600, <laughs> um, you know, from, from this leap of faith. And then the third night came back, same thing. We need volunteers to give up their seats. I jumped up offered to give up my seat and I was literally the last person on that flight so apparently um <clears throat> if one other person had showed up I would have gotten another $800 but so I ended up on that flight land in Paris the next morning go to check into um I had a, a book called Paris on a budget and um and I found some like hostel in the middle of the city and I went to it. Now, again, I'm so naive. I didn't know, you can't check into places before like three o'clock, right? I was there at nine o'clock in the morning trying to check into my, to a room. I didn't have a reservation. I just went to see if I could check into a room. They said, no, you can't check in until three o'clock. Um, but you can leave your bag here in the storage room if you want to. So I did that. I got my pictures together and I went to this, uh, the biggest modeling agency in Paris. And I, and I had a name of, a, of an agent there that I found. 
and I went to the agency and I showed them, I, I went to the receptionist and I said, Hey, I'm here for guy's name was Paul. I'm here for Paul. Um, and I have my portfolio and all of that. And she says, Oh, give me your pictures. And I gave her my pictures. She was gone for probably 30 seconds. She came back. Oh, we don't, we already have people who look like you. Thank you very much. And so I thought, okay, that's, uh, that's, I have other agency. I have other, I'll just go to some other places. So I'm sitting in the lobby and I'm, um, I'm putting my stuff together and I'm looking through the book and I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to go next. It's like nine 30 in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, something like that. And, uh, and this guy's in the lobby, this big black guy's in the lobby speaking French, to these two young models. And he's looking at me, he keeps looking at me, keeps looking at me. And then finally, he walks over to me, and in perfect American English, he says, hey, are you from Chicago? And I was like, yeah, I was just living in Chicago. He goes, yeah, I remember. I saw you, I saw you in Chicago. I was, I'm from Chicago. I was there this past summer. I'm a photographer. I never forget a face. He goes, are you, so you're a model? I go, yeah. He says, did they accept you? I said, no, he didn't. They said, they, said, uh, they had someone that looks like me. He goes, okay, come on. I want you to, I want you to uh, follow me. He didn't tell me where he was going. He just said, follow me. So we we're, say we're on the third floor of this building. We walk out of that office and we walk down the hallway on that same third floor and we go to the next office. And the next office apparently was another agency that I wasn't aware of. We walk in that agency and now, now I'm figuring out he wants to introduce me to another agent, maybe a friend of his. We walk in the agency and this woman from one of my rinky-dink fashion shows in college was standing in that other agency. She goes, oh my God, what are you doing here? And I was like, I'm here. I just came, I just moved here. I said, I'm, I'm here to do some modeling and blah, blah, blah. And they go, where are you staying? I go, I don't have any place to stay yet. And she was with a friend of hers. And her friend was like, oh, my mom, she's got a beautiful flat right in front of the Sacre Coeur, which is in the, one of the most charming districts of Paris. And uh, she just left town yesterday for a few months to go visit his sister and you could stay at her flat. So anyway, I kind of plugged into this new community of people and I got representation in that other agency um, after meeting this guy who saw me in Chicago, who happened to be there that morning, which is the morning I arrived after giving up my seat twice. <laughs> it's like, it just all came together. And it couldn't have been more eloquent in the way that it all played out. And then I, that was another experience where I thought to myself, that's what's happening. We're, when we get these urges to take a leap of faith and we don't know how it's going to turn out, we have to do it because everything has already been orchestrated. The, or, the urge is happening because everything has already been orchestrated. We just have to, we just have to be courageous enough and have enough faith in that inner guidance to take the leap. And that's what makes it an adventurous story. That's why we're talking about it right now. And this is, you know, 30 years, 20, almost 30 years later, we're still talking about this story from this leap of faith. And I tell that to everybody. I say, you know, if you, the things that you will ultimately be writing about and talking about are not, you know, the things that you are aspiring to right now in your mind. It's things you don't even know are gonna happen once you start to listen to that inner guidance. And the, the obstacles, when you encounter one of these obstacles, you need to really pay attention, write them down, 
Don't forget any detail, even the smallest detail, because when you when you tell the story about what was it standing in your way years and years later, that's what people are going to want to hear about. They don't care about how much money you made. They want to know what you overcome in order to take your leap of faith. And the more detailed you can be about that, the more fascinating the story is going to be. So look at your obstacles in a new through a new lens. This is something that's going to be a part of your story because you're going to trust that your heart is never going to lead you astray. And, you know, it takes a, having a couple of those experiences in order to really start to trust it and start to have more and more faith in it. But the more you do, man, the more, the more you do, the more you, you can do. And, um, and, and that, that's the good stuff of life in my experience. Oh, I think that's where the magic is. I think the magic is where we kind of tune into being part of the orchestra of life and we're played when we need to be played and we're putting aside. And I, I, think, think I think that's such a great analogy, though, to kind of write down the, ob like almost on a daily basis, on a journal kind of thing, write down in an unattached way all these little obstacles in your day to get to this successful place, like assuming that you're going to get to this end place because yeah. like with the idea that you're going to tell a great story someday because then mm -hmm. you're kind of assuming that you're going to reach some kind of better place than where you're currently at and it kind of makes you kind of smile at these daily ups and go well, oh geez this would be a great one to say that i got past this one and i scored the goal <laughs> there or whatever it might be right. you know, so. and so, for, right, for anyone right. I'm, I'm sure loads of people are listening and even it came up me straight away wow that's so, so cool how do i listen to my inner voice more because like that's where it all is and i'm sure there's lots of people listening that are going okay how do i listen to my inner voice and what's more? an inner voice and like and like, yeah. is there an app for my, this? My understanding of the inner voice is, is our intuition. It's our inner guide. You think tuition, it's our, our, our teacher and intuition, it's our internal teacher. And almost like it's, without saying it's too cryptic or too philosophical, it's like our, our kind of divine GPS. It's kind of guiding us in our own little way so that we're, we're where we're meant to be at the right time. If you're someone who believes in faith, that type of way. I wonder if you could talk about how people listening or how me or how anyone can listen to their inner voice more because... To me, I think that's where a huge the magic the magic of life exists. Yeah, well, the inner voice has been has been speaking to us our entire life, right? Largely, most of us have ignored it <laughs> because we've been indoctrinated and conditioned to seek comfort and safety, and oftentimes, the comfortable thing to do is not the thing you should do. It's 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 moving in the direction of growth and and evolution that's where the inner voice is generally guiding you. So the inner voice is never going to say, oh, sit on your couch all day today and just flip through magazines and look at Netflix. That's not, that's not a trademark of the inner. The inner voice is going to say, hey, you know, this relationship you're in, you said you don't really feel fulfilled, right? And it's not really working for you. And maybe you should, you should, explore other options maybe you should be on your own for a little while oh no i can't do that <laughs> you know everyone's expecting me to be in this relationship and it's i'm able to get other opportunities because i'm in this relationship so we start talking ourselves out of of doing taking the leap of faith and that's that's why it's called a leap of faith because you don't know how it's going to turn out and so the inner voice is notorious for urging you and nudging you to take the leap of faith if there's some some app you want to develop to help people, then usually the inner voices say, okay, we'll just do it. You know, oh, but I don't have enough money. I don't have enough connections. I don't have enough time. I don't have, okay, we well, just do it. Just do what you can with what you have right now. Oh, I don't know. You know, we, we're so used to talking ourselves out, but that's, 
that's generally the trademark of the inner voice. It's it's pushing you in the direction that's kind of stretching you, and uh, and it's in the direction of uncertainty. But it's in alignment with what what is making you feel expansive. Expansive when you think about okay, if this app really does come to fruition, how great would you feel knowing that you've helped a million people um, with some issue that they're grappling with? And you have to split test it, you know? You have to split test it, just like the internet marketing guys do. When they're split testing Facebook and Google ads, you have to split test your inner voice with the other voices that are in there, right? There's the pain body voice, there's the trauma voice, there's social conditioning voice, voice from your caretakers and people who raised you, all of those voices are speaking to us, you know, all the time. It could be a million voices. And, uh, but that inner voice, the reason they call it the still small voice is because it's been suppressed so much that it's barely detectable. But the more you, you can listen for it and follow through on it, the louder, that's how you turn the volume up on it. And then eventually it just becomes like you're annoying a roommate. You just, you know, <laughs> did you do, did you pay the light bill yet? <laughs> yes, yes, I paid the light bill. Yes. You know, if you haven't, okay, I'll do it today. So you you want to get your your still small voice like a jet engine. You want it to get that loud. So you you even if you wanted to ignore it, you can't ignore it. It's just right there in your ear all the time. But you find that your life just, you end, you end up in the right place at the right time more often than not. Yeah, that's, I think that's what all of us are looking for. You know, we've all watched enough Walt Disney movies and just that, that there's so many of those incredible analogies like your story where it's like, you know, you're down on your luck and then you get this little whisper about something and one event happens and they happen in this incredible sequence where, you, you know, these great, incredible it. things happen. So, yeah, I think all of us are really looking for more of that, more, more yeah, trust man, I, and more faith. And on the flip side of that, right, I, I, I was a yoga teacher for many years and living in Los Angeles, you know, Los Angeles is notorious for, for having lots of traffic. So you can't really use the fact that there's traffic as an excuse to explain why you're late somewhere because everybody knows there's traffic in Los Angeles. So you just have to, you get good at timing the traffic. And I remember going to a yoga class one morning to teach it. And this is a class I had taught hundreds of times. So I had my commute all timed out and it took me like, I knew it was gonna take me 15 minutes to get there. There was actually very little traffic usually, except this one morning, I, sh I, I left my apartment five minutes earlier than I normally would. And there was all of this bumper to bumper traffic. And there was no real reason why there should be traffic. So again, as, a, as an expert LA uh, traffic navigator, you know how to work the, the alleyways and make your way to the next major street so that you can avoid that traffic. So I did that. I started zigzagging through the alleys, hit the next major street, bumper to bumper traffic. Now this is this is highly unusual. At this time of day, on these two streets, there's never that much traffic. So now I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be late, right? And I hate being late because I see it as a, again, it's just, it's just you should have planned better, right? But I, I felt like I did plan well, but they don't know that I planned. So now I'm in my head around it. I'm like, no, I'm a yoga teacher. I should be breathing. Let me try to calm down. And, and I, I'm just sitting in this traffic. There's nothing I can do. I have to complete. I either 
continue frustrating myself or just surrender to it, right? And then I reached the major intersection that crosses both of those streets. And if there was anything that was causing the traffic, it would have been at that intersection. So I'm looking for construction. I'm looking for, is the president in town? Was there an accident? Is there some crazy person in the middle of the street? What's causing the traffic? And then as I'm reaching the intersection, it just clears up. There's nothing, there's no reason why there was traffic. So now I'm even more pissed because there's nothing I can blame it on. You know, if there was construction, I could say, hey guys, you know, there was some, did you, you saw the construction on Fairfax, right? Yeah, I got caught in that too. There was nothing. So I'm just late. So I show up to the, to the, uh, the place where I'm teaching 10 minutes late, which is highly unusual. Never, I was never that late because I never wanted my students to think that they could come late. So that was another reason why I always wanted to start on time. So now I'm, I'm parked in the parking garage. I'm racing through the parking garage. I get out. Now people can see me walking. So I slow down because I'm the yoga teacher. You can't be rushing. You can't be seen rushing as a yoga teacher. And as I'm casually walking up to the, to the room, it's encased in, in, in glass. So you can see through it. And I see the silhouettes of all of the students huddled in the back of the room. And these Two people are in the front of the room and they're moving around. I'm like, what's going on in there? And I have the, you know, flip-flops on and my little Lululemon stuff. And I walk in the room and under my flip-flops, I feel this sort of, um, I feel glass. And I look down and there's a million little shreds of glass all over the floor. And I look up and the front of the room is all mirror panels, big nine foot by four foot panels. The panel in the middle of the front wall was empty. So what had happened was at the top of the hour when I was supposed to start the yoga class, somehow that mirror, that nine by four foot mirror dislodged and just came crashing down right where I would have been sitting at the start of the class. Wow. So as it turns out, that phantom traffic jam that I had no explanation for, that I was getting so frustrated and anxious about, was actually saving my life. Or at the very least, it was saving me from having a difficult start to my day. <laughs> and, you know, it's that whole idea of nature's rejection is, is nature's protection. Wow. Where if you're doing your best and it's it's not happening for whatever reason that's out of your control, then you're probably being spared. You're probably dodging a bullet in that situation. And after having that experience, now whenever I'm, I'm you know, trying to make something happen and it's not happening or trying to get somewhere and I'm not able to get there, I'm, I'm able to now relax a little bit more, not completely, but a little bit more than I was prior to that experience where I was still kind of locked in and rigidly attached to, no, this thing has to happen in this way. So I think that's kind of the opposite of, you know, the leap of faith, which is the trust of faith, the trust of faith, right? Where I am is where I'm supposed to be, even though it doesn't look like it because I'm doing everything I can and yet I'm still stuck in this situation. So if that's happening, I'm gonna trust and have faith that this is where I'm supposed to be for this moment in time, for all reasons. Yeah, I love that. I love it. 
That I really do. Analogy. Like, I, I think it reminds me of perspective like that, you know, all of us would obviously love to download the software that kind of goes, okay, how do I retrain my brain to kind of go, okay, if something's not working, this is obviously for the better for me. And like, it is all about your perspective because every single one of us listening, like so much, we, we live our lives externally. We live our lives externally, but the internal is what, what you kind mean of by that? Okay, expand like, on that. So we live our lives looking out onto the world and most of our attention is focused on the outside. Yet, if our internal software was a little bit different, like how we, how we perceived the world was different, our experience would be different in every moment. So it's a bit like if, if our mind could be rewired to where we saw failures, not as failures, but just educations towards stepping. And if we were more process oriented rather than results you know all these kind of rewiring ourselves and it's kind of going like we've innately as human beings we have this kind of fear bias we have this slight propensity towards fear because evolutionary it kind of served us because it, it kept us safe so that we belong that that's supposedly some of the theories i've heard on it but like how do we rewire our brain like really what are your thoughts on perspective and steve wants to say something here and too. i believe the answer is meditation, meditation. oh good one steve <laughs> Well, you know, look, here, here, let's, be, let's keep it 100, right? Meditation is a great foundation. Kind of like sleep, right? Sleep does wonders for your brain, but sleep is not going to help you, you know, get up on stage and, and, and do a TED talk um, from beginning to end. You still have to study and you still have to research and you still have to explore the things that need to, you need to explore in order to, to do a great job. Right. So meditation is kind of like that. Meditation helps keep your brain healthy so that you can then apply it to all of the other things that you're here to do. And again, it goes back to this idea of prioritization. So you may come out of meditation with this strong urge to go see um, an Ayurvedic practitioner or to start going to get massages once a week if if you can or to start, um, you know, trying out keto or becoming vegan or wh whatever your heart is urging you to do, because those are pathways to uh, staying on your purpose. And, and once you find yourself kind of locked in on your purpose, that becomes your new editor. That's, that's how you, that's, that becomes the reason why you accept certain invitations or why you decline certain invitations or why you put yourself in certain situations or why you avoid other situations. And, and some of those situations may be nourishing for your, for your intellect, which is important, or nourishing for your family or your other relationships, which is important, right? Um, taking time away from work to spend time with the kids or taking time away from um, TV to spend time doing, working on your, your passion project or whatever, what have you. Because one of the things that we are very good at doing as humans is, is using confirmation bias to to justify pretty much whatever we feel like doing in those moments. You know, I feel like eating a dozen donuts and I deserve it because I'm using self-care and blah, blah, blah. And I need a sign. I saw there's a commercial about donuts. That's a sign. You know, <laughs> we're very good at that. We're not so great at being able to pierce through that and see our blind spots and be honest with ourselves. And so um, sometimes we need outside help for those kinds of things. Sometimes therapy is really good for that. Sometimes um, mentorship is good for that. And so meditation can be a great tool for helping us to see, oh, I need to go and do a sobriety program. This is, you know, I'm now drinking a bottle of wine a day and uh, that's not normal. 
you know, I've justified it up until this point, but I, I know that it's not, now I, I'm realizing it's not where I ultimately want to be. So, you know, what are the options? So if meditation can get you to a place where you're asking yourself, what are the options? And then you're able to execute on some of those options. That's ultimately what it's useful for. It's not useful for just sitting around getting into a blank mind, um, you know, 10 or 15 minutes a day. The question is, what are you going to do with that, with that, all that stillness when you come out of the meditation and how are you going to use it to be of service to the, to the greater world? And I think through meditation. And I guess you, that like when you do get in that space, it's listening to those little whispers. Those yeah, you hear the, 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 the quiet, soul, gentle going, hey, voice. what about this? Yeah, I got a great idea. What about this? Yeah, totally. <laughs> in fact, the problem is there's too many of those. And it's like, oh my God, I got all these creative ideas. Now I really need to learn how to um, discern because I can't do all of them. So I can only really focus on two or three of them. And I'll just have to queue up the rest of them, you know, instead of overwhelming ourselves with trying to do 10 things at one time, because that can also be counterproductive as well. Yeah, yeah, we're good at that one. Okay, fi final question. <laughs> and I, I, I'm sure this is relevant. So we grew up and we kind of got really hooked in meditation. Back about 20 years ago, we did a Vipassana meditation course. And, yep. you know, the week before we did, we went to a Tony Robbins seminar in New York and it was all, you know, you can be anything you want to be. You can achieve it. You can get it. And then the total <laughs> antithesis, we went and did a Vipassana meditation course the week after. So it was like the external to the internal. And we kind of really got hooked on meditation and we were kind of meditating an hour, two hours a day, an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And I remember when we came home. Our mother couldn't understand. She she kind of referred to meditation as navel gazing. And why are you sitting still for that long? Like, you know, you should do things. Like, what are you sitting down doing nothing? Like, this is unproductive. You're self-indulgent, lads. Now, uh, we love our mother. She's uh, amazing. Yeah, I just want to put a context there. Our mother is phenomenal. She's incredible. I love you so much, mom, if you do hear this. Uh, and underneath it, there was also a curiosity of mom uh, as to what meditation was and a fear to actually do it. And over the years, kind of she's explored it more and more and she, she finds it of, of great value. And I just wonder for anyone listening who's a similar kind of approach that meditation, it's not for me, it's, it's kind of hard, I prefer it's awkward, doing I prefer sitting. doing, I don't want to sit still because I'll just hear the, all these voices that I don't like. Are there any tips or things that you could recommend for people that meditation isn't just sitting still and kind of navel gazing? And maybe, maybe the word mindfulness is better for those people because they're like, essentially they're the same principles of being more here and now just with different words and different kind of uh, clothes on them. Mm. I think one of the things that makes, that has made me a, a better meditation teacher is the fact that I struggled as well in the first few years of my meditation practice. I dabbled, I was reluctant. I never really liked doing it. The worst thing you could ever ask me was have to meditate it yet. Because that that been I have to sit in torture now for ten or fifteen minutes, and um, and then when I met my meditation teacher um, in two thousand and three, that really changed my relationship with meditation, and I realized how enjoyable it actually could feel if you know what you're doing, and that there's nothing arbitrary about meditation, and that was the inspiration behind me writing my. Um, my second book, which is Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. I wrote it for people who don't like meditating or don't know how to meditate or don't understand the practice. I wrote, I wrote it to give them a, a basically a Cliff Notes version or a Rosetta Stone of the practice so that you can also have great enjoyment in sitting with your eyes closed. 
And that's how you know you have a successful meditation practice. I define successful meditation practice as one that you actually look forward to doing. If you don't look forward to doing it, it doesn't mean that meditation doesn't work or there's something wrong with your mind. It just means you don't understand it well enough. And there's enough knowledge out here of people who do understand it to help you get to that point where you are able to enjoy it. And, and it's basically that book, Bliss More, is the book I wish I had in those first few years of, uh, of struggling to meditate. So I would say, if I were you, you're struggling to meditate, get a copy of Bliss More. It's a great audio book read by yours truly. And uh, it's only like five or six hours long. So, and the first half of it is instructional. The second half of it is anecdotal. But uh, so yeah, if you have three extra hours on your hands to learn a practice that can benefit you for the rest of your life, grab a copy of that audio book. Um, and other than that, just uh, understand that meditation is in the same category as, as a handstand. You know, it's hard in the beginning, but if you get good at it, it becomes fun. And you can really um, impress people <laughs> by how easy it is for you because you put the work in, not because you have some kind of natural ability to do handstands. <laughs> I just associate you guys with handstands because that's that's how I first met you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember. I must do more of them. Haven't done them in a while. But uh, like, what are some of the benefits for anyone who's listening and kind of going, okay, okay, right, maybe there is hope. Maybe you could do it. Like, what is the like two-minute sales pitch on why someone might try to meditate? The main benefit that i've seen people obviously there are lots of like in your brain you know you, you use more of your brain and um less stress blah 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 the main benefit i've seen that that's actually a real i would consider a real world benefit is your sleep your quality of sleep dramatically improves and we live in a society especially in the western society where most of us are sleep deprived most of us are massively sleep deprived. In fact, that's you can you can put that in the in the pandemic category. It's 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 something that we're experiencing on a global level because of cell phones and digital uh, gadgets and electricity, and uh, you know it allows us to stay up really late. It allows us to order food that we the body was never intended to to, di to digest. It allows us to connect with people and, hey, let's go to a bar and drink stuff and smoke stuff and, and, and consume things that are very stressful to the nervous system. And so meditation can kind of, it's like kryptonite to stress. It can break through all of that. And that's what allows your body to get into deeper states of rest while you're sleeping, which means you wake up closer to the true you instead of the you that needs all kinds of caffeine and all kinds of stimulants and all kinds of, you know, external things in order to feel like you can get through the day. Instead, you have everything you need. Your body already knows how to sleep, how to heal itself, how to reproduce, how to regulate hormones, um, how to protect itself against infectious diseases, how to, uh, uh, keep cancer at bay. Your body already knows how to do that when it has everything that it needs. And the primary fuel source is rest. It needs the rest in order to do everything that it needs that's designed to already do. Once you supply your body with the rest that it needs, everything else, it's like dominoes. Everything else just falls into place. 
Good love answer. Love it smooth. I think that was succinct. Your voice is so lovely. Like I feel like I could just sit and listen to you. You've got like a deep <laughs> resonance. Have like camera headspace not approached you and gone like we need your voice. It's just so cool. <laughs> it is like it really Maybe is. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. So uh, true. Light, you're absolutely wonderful. It's been a joy yeah, talking a to you in many, many, many ways. Uh, for for people listening that want to find out more about your works, I know you have your daily emails, which are really cool. I know I've seen you on Instagram, and you're fabulous. Um, for people who are looking for your more, you've three book books. Is one you've, is all about inspiration. 108 ways to days to yes, be knowing where to look. 108 daily doses of inspiration. Yes. Anywhere else that people you'd like to send people. Yeah. Um, if you go to lightwatkins.com, you'll see that I also have a community, an online community called the Happiness Insiders, which gives people access to meditation challenges, movement challenges, and as well as master classes for things like finding your purpose, manifesting abundance, overcoming fear, basically all of those intangible inner work practices that people just, you know, we all want to find our purpose, but where do I start? I want to manifest abundance. Where do I start? I want to overcome fear. How do I start doing that? And so it's just a kind of step-by-step hand-holding approach to helping you become the best version of you. Brilliant. Beautiful. Sounds really cool. Light, you're brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thank Thanks you for your guys. smooth voice. You. Thanks for your wisdom for all of it. <laughs> Thanks for yeah. inviting me on, man. It's awesome. What a dude, really. What a glorious human. Shining ray of light. Yeah, absolutely. And just smooth. Yeah, right. it is cool. Yeah, really cool. That was great. It kind of lightens my fire to meditate more. And I've, in fairness, I'm in a good space with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, certainly this year I've been good. I've been doing half an hour a day this morning. I needed 20 minutes, but I'm, I'd say I've been 98% of the days since this yeah. year. So. But but I, the big thing which I got from it was that inner voice. Like, how do you, how do we kind of have enough space within ourselves to listen to that little squeak where it starts becoming a little louder and you start you know, you can manifest more of a Walt Disney and less of a like, you know, uh, uh, doom and gloom Batman type movie. I prefer, <laughs> I prefer a bit more Walt Disney. Yeah, I think it was fabulous. Uh, thank you for listening. That was fabulous. Um, as we said, we do have our Good Health Revolution course, which starts on April the 11th. And it's epic. It's all about revolutionizing your gut because that's where most of your immune systems are. And here's a really good sales pitch for it. As a society, we need a good health revolution. People, like all health, all disease starts in the gut. People are literally eating ourselves into illness. We need to change this as a society for your friends, for your family, for your children to be. For everyone, we need to change how we eat. Even today, like my kids were going, Dad, can I have this? Can I have this sugar thing? It was like, no, we need to change society. And it starts with everyone. Every moment, we need to stand up. Otherwise, we're just selling ourselves short. Good. Okay. He's pretty good. A little bit ranty, a little bit yeah, preachy. I but was not, excited. Sorry. Not bad. Anyway, April 11, it's four weeks. It's with our friend, Dr. Alan Desmond, a consultant gastroenterologist and Rosie Martin dietitian and Simone Venner Mindfulness. And if you're still here, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks, Emil. And if you enjoyed this, uh, if you want to share it on Instagram stories, we'll reshare it because I just think it's a really nice message to get out to more people. Yeah. So, yeah. Wishing you a wonderful day. Sending lots Bye. of love, lots of life. Lots of light and sunshine and lollipops and maybe a little uh, sprinkling of unicorns too. Woohoo! Bye 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 bye. bye, 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 bye. bye. See you bye.